This is not going to be a pleasant experience. You are going to see and hear things that are not going to be very nice. Experts divide serial killing into two general types: organized and disorganized. An organized killer brings everything he needs to complete the murder. A disorganized killer improvises. Begin. Listener discretion is advised. As the 1970s were coming to an end, Dr. Robert Offerman was 44 years old. He was an osteopathic surgeon. He lived in a condominium in Galea, California, which is about 100 miles northwest of Los Angeles. At the time, he was living alone and he was going through a divorce. On the morning of December 30th, 1979, two of Offerman's friends went to his condo because he was supposed to play tennis with them. They let themselves in and they discovered his dead body and the dead body of a woman in the master bedroom. Here is a quick word from our sponsor. We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod Studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems. Classic functional medicine back to basics health tips and special updates from the best doctors in the United States of America. Check out this health and wellness podcast shows. Explore Health Talk Weekly, Healthy Lifestyle Matters, Excellent Health Digest, Healthy and Free Daily and last but not least. Weekly Health and Fitness Corner. Also, Check out Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told Fiction Podcast for that real life on the go experience with the 27-year-old golden boy who made our guest invite number one list. He tells us about his story as it happens in real time and in real life. It's Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told. Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show. They immediately called the Sheriff's Department. The woman was identified as 34-year-old Deborah Manning. She was a clinical psychologist who had recently gotten divorced. The police concluded that the two were dating and Manning had stayed the night. Manning's body was on the waterbed in the master bedroom. Her wrists had been bound behind her back with twine. One thing that the police noted was that the twine had been tied using a unique diamond knot. Manning had been shot once in the head. It appeared that Offerman was on his knees at the foot of the bed when he was shot three times in the chest and the back. In one of his hands was some twine. The police talked to many people in the neighborhood. 
Several people said that their homes had been broken into and even ransacked earlier on the evening of the murderer. One couple said that they saw a man run through their living room and out the back door. They lost sight of him after he hopped over their back fence. The police think that the same man broke into Offerman's home using a screwdriver. He went into the bedroom and aimed the gun at the couple. He most likely gave some twine to Manning and ordered her to tie up Offerman. She did, but she didn't tie it tightly. When the killer was tying up Manning, Offerman freed himself. But the killer probably stopped him before he put up too much of a fight. He either shot Offerman or ordered Offerman to get on his knees and then executed him. Afterward, he killed Manning. The neighbors heard gunfire at about 3 a.m. No one reported the gunshots, though, because they thought it was holiday fireworks. After the couple was killed, it appears that the killer raided Offerman's refrigerator. He ate some leftover turkey and then left the remains of the turkey on the porch. The case was incredibly baffling for the police. Nothing had been stolen from the home. Also, there were no signs of sexual assault. It wasn't long before the case was considered cold. Two and a half months later, on March 16, 1980, the police were called to a home in Ventura, California. Downtown Ventura is about 35 miles from Goleta's town center. The home they were called to belonged to a respected lawyer, 43-year-old Lyman Smith. Many people believe that in the near future, Lyman was going to be made a superior court judge. Lyman lived with his second wife, who was his former secretary, 33-year-old Charlene Smith. Their dead bodies were found by Lyman's 12-year-old son from his first marriage. He had come over that afternoon to mow the lawn. When he got into the house, he heard the alarm clock in the master bedroom. He walked into the bedroom and he found the dead bodies of his father and stepmother. They had been beaten to death. The murder weapon, which was found at the foot of the bed, was a log that came from a stack of wood outside of the house. The medical examiner determined that Charlene had been sexually assaulted. Both Lyman and Charlene's wrists had been bound behind their backs with cords from the drapes. The knot was an unusual diamond knot. It's not known how the killer got into the home because there were no signs of forced entry or a break-in. The front door had been unlocked, so he may have entered the home through that door. In this case, the police had a suspect. There's a friend of Lyman's who was also a lawyer. The man had visited the couple the night before their bodies were found. His fingerprint was found on a wine glass. Also, his minister had told the police that he had confessed to the murders. But after some investigating, the police couldn't find any evidence that connected him to the murders. They also discovered that the minister had a bizarre history of making up stories for the police. 
so the charges against the man were dismissed at the preliminary hearing due to lack of evidence. Without a suspect, the case became cold. At the time, no one knew that the murders of the Smiths were connected to the murders of Robert Offerman and Deborah Manning. After all, there were several significant differences. The murders took place in different cities that were in different counties. They were also killed in different ways. One couple was shot and the other was bludgeoned to death. But there were major similarities. Both couples were attacked in the middle of the night while they were in bed by a home invader. They were bound and a diamond knot was used to tie up three of the victims. It's a complicated knot that is used by sailors and it's also used in interior design. The victims were all white around the same age and they had white collar jobs. The problem was that it was just two sets of murders and it's understandable why no one recognized an emerging pattern. 24-year-old Keith Harrington and 28-year-old Patrice Briscoe got married in May 1980. Keith was a med student and Patrice, who went by Patty, was a nurse. They only knew each other a few months before they were married. In August 1980, they were living in Dana Point, California in a house that was owned by Keith's father, Roger. On August 21st, 1980, Roger went over to the house where the newlyweds were living. Under the doorbell, there was a note left by some of Patty's friends. It was dated the day before. The note said that the friends had come by and no one was home. Roger let himself into the house and he made his way to the master bedroom. He found his 24-year-old son and 28-year-old daughter-in-law murdered in their bed. The bed was soaked in blood. It was determined that Patty had been raped. Then the couple was bludgeoned to death with a sprinkler head from the backyard. The sprinkler head was nowhere to be found. Keith and Patty's wrist showed signs of being bound but whatever was used to tie them up was gone, and it wasn't found at the crime scene. It was thought that the murders happened two nights earlier. It's believed that the killer got in through a sliding door, which was left unlocked. Dana Point is 166 miles from Goleta and 129 miles from Ventura. Dana Point is in a county south of Los Angeles Aguilita and Ventura are in counties northwest of the city. Sonoma connected the murders of the Harringtons to the murders of the Smiths, which happened six months earlier, and the killings of Offerman and Manning, which occurred eight months before the Harringtons were killed. Five months after the murders of the Harringtons, on February 5, 1981, the mother of 28-year-old Manuela Withoon received a startling phone call. Manuela worked at a bank and she didn't show up for work. She also wasn't answering her phone. They had tried to contact her husband, David, but he was in the hospital because he had a gastrointestinal virus. Manuela and David lived in a middle-class home in Irvine, California. 
Manuela was a loan officer with a bank, and her husband of five years, David, was a salesman at a Mercedes-Benz dealership. Manuela's mother decided to go over to the couple's home. She got into their house and went to the master bedroom. She found the dead body of her daughter. Manuela had been raped and beaten to death. It's believed that she was beaten to death with a lamp that was missing from the house. She had also been bound, but, like the murder weapon, whatever was used to tie her up was missing. Some of her jewelry was also missing. The killer got into the house by using a screwdriver to force open a sliding door. Six months later, a criminalist with the Orange County Sheriff's Department was reviewing Manuela's case. He thought that there were a lot of similarities between her murder and the murders of the Harringtons. The murders happened within six months of each other in cities that are 25 miles apart and they are both in Orange County. There were some noticeable differences in the crimes. A big one was that the Harringtons were a couple and Manuela was alone when she was killed. Also, the killer didn't break into the Harringtons' home, but he did force Manuela's door open. Nothing had been stolen from the Harringtons' home, while it appears that the killer took some of Manuela's jewelry. But those differences seem minor when you consider the similarities between the crimes. The first is that the victims were beaten to death with an object found in their home. The murder weapons were then taken from the crime scene by the killer. Both Manuela and Patty Harrington were sexually assaulted. Both couples were childless and lived in middle-class homes. Yes, Manuela was alone when she was killed, but she was only home alone that night because her husband, David, was in the hospital. Perhaps the killer expected to find David at home that night. Also, while the killer didn't break into the Harrington home, it's believed that he entered their house through a sliding door, which is the door Manuela's killer forced open. The Harringtons didn't smoke, but used wooden match was found on their kitchen floor. Several matches were found in a flower bed outside Manuela's home. So while the criminalist thought that the murders were connected, he didn't have any suspects or leads. Around the same time that the criminalist was looking at the murders, another couple in Goleta was murdered in their beds. On the night of July 26, 1981, 35-year-old Sherry Domingo was house-sitting a house that was about half a mile away from where Robert Offerman and Deborah Manning were killed about a year and a half earlier. On the morning of July 28th, a real estate agent and her clients came into the home. In the master bedroom, the real estate agent found two new dead bodies. He got his clients out of the home and called the police. The bodies were 35-year-old Sherry Domingo and her boyfriend, 27-year-old Gregory Sanchez. The couple did not live together. It appeared that Gregory just happened to have spent the night. The couple had been beaten to death. Sherry's wrist shows signs of being bound. The police weren't sure if the murder weapon was a garden tool known as a turf plugger 
or if it was a pipe wrench. The police aren't sure what was used to kill the couple because whatever it was, like the ligatures used to bound them, were missing from the crime scene. Sanchez had also been shot in the face, but the shot had not been fatal. His thought that he tried to fight off the attacker. But the attacker shot him and then bashed him 24 times in the head with a blunt object. Days after the bodies were discovered, on August 2nd, 1981, the Los Angeles Times published an article about a serial killer known as the Night Stalker who was killing couples in their beds. The moniker, the Night Stalker, was given to the killer four years before Richard Ramirez, the other serial killer known as the Night Stalker, began his murderous career. The article was based on information from the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Department. Galita, where Offerman, Manning, Domingo, and Sanchez were all killed, is located in Santa Barbara County. The Santa Barbara Sheriff's Department thought that eight murders were committed by the Night Stalker. They were the murders of Robert Offerman and Deborah Manning, Lyman and Charlene Smith, Keith and Patty Harrington, and Sherry Domingo and Gregory Sanchez. The article pointed out that all the couples were murdered in the master bedroom. Nearly all the victims had been bound. The only victims who were not bound were Offerman and Sanchez. Besides Robert Offerman and Deborah Manning, they had all been beaten to death. Offerman and Manning had been shot, as was Gregory Sanchez. It's believed that Offerman and Sanchez tried to fight off their attackers, and this is how they ended up being shot. The police noted that the same caliber of gun was used in both home invasions. So while people were connecting some of the crimes, there were still no leads. After the murders of Sherry Domingo and Gregory Sanchez, the Night Stalker seemingly went quiet. Of course, since no one knew who he was, no one knew why he stopped. Some people speculated that the media exposure scared him off. Or another possibility, as some people in law enforcement thought, was that there was no serial killer and the murders were connected. Nevertheless, years went by and the five murder cases remained cold. In 1996, Mary Hong, a criminalist with the Orange County Sheriff's Department, was reviewing cold cases in her county. One specific case she was looking at was the murder of 18-year-old Janelle Cruz. On May 4, 1986, 18-year-old Cruz was at home alone in Irvine, California. Her family had gone on vacation. Cruz had a job at a local restaurant and she couldn't get the time off. That evening, Cruz had a friend over. At some point, they heard a strange noise in the backyard. They looked out the window and didn't see anything unusual, so they didn't think anything of it. Cruz's friend left at about 10.45 p.m. At the time, Cruz's family was selling their home. On the morning of May 5, 1986, the real estate agent let herself into the home. She found 18-year-old Janelle Cruz's dead body in her bedroom. 
She had been bound, raped, and bludgeoned in the head with a pipe wrench that was missing from the family's home. The police thought that the murder may have been inspired by a made-for-TV movie that had aired the night before on NBC. That was... Here is a quick word from our sponsor. We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows. From the Nespod Studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems. Classic functional medicine back to basics health tips and special updates from the best doctors in the United States of America. Check out this health and wellness podcast shows. Explore Health Talk Weekly, Healthy Lifestyle Matters, Excellent Health Digest, Healthy and Free Daily and last but not least. Weekly Health and Fitness Corner. Also, check out Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told Fiction Podcast, for that real-life on-the-go experience with the 27-year-old golden boy who made our guest invite number one list. He tells us about his story as it happens in real time and in real life. It's Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told. Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show. The Deliberate Stranger starring Mark Harmon as real-life serial killer Ted Bundy. The police had several suspects in the case and even made an arrest. But no one was ever tried for the murder. Ten years later, Mary Hung was reviewing the case and she noticed that there was a biological sample from the killer. So a DNA profile for the killer was created. When the DNA was put into their system, Hong was alerted that the DNA belonged to the same man who killed the Harringtons and Manuela Wathun. No one had connected Cruz's murder to the other night's soccer murders for several reasons. Notably, it had been five years since the last murder. Cruz was also much younger than the other victims and she was alone when she was killed. But there were some notable similarities. Cruz had been raped and murdered in her bed in the middle of the night by a home invader. The killer picked up the murder weapon at the family's home and it was missing after the murder. Whatever was used to tie up Cruz was also missing. After Cruz's murder was connected to two of the Night Stalker murders, it led to more investigators being assigned to the Night Stalker case. In early 1998, it was determined that DNA found at the crime scene of Lyman and Charlene Smith's murder belonged to the same man. By 2000, the four victims in Goleta, Robert Offerman, Deborah Manning, Gregory Sanchez, and Sherry Domingo, were linked to the same killer. But still, no one knew who he was or why he had suddenly stopped killing. There was only speculation. Perhaps he had died, or he was in jail, or maybe he found religion. In October 2000, the Orange County District Attorney called the killer the original Night Stalker for the first time to make sure people knew that they weren't talking about Richard Ramirez. A few months later, a criminalist with the Contra Costa County Sheriff's Department named Paul Holes 
was working on a series of cold cases. It's believed that one man, known as the East Area Rapist, had raped eight women in Contra Costa County between October 1978 and July 1979. Poles wanted to test the DNA from three cases to confirm one man had committed the rapes. He sent the DNA to Mary Hong to be tested. Holes and Hong were shocked to find out that the original Night Stalker and the East Area Rapist were the same person. Paul Holes had been working on the East Area Rapist case for four years as a side project. The cases were past their statute of limitations. But Holes thought that a criminal like that should be identified. Between June 18, 1976 and July 5, 1979, the East Area Rapists broke into the homes of 45 people in and around Sacramento County. Many times it was couples and families who lived in the homes. The home invader would tie up the couple and then rape the woman. Sometimes he would do sadistic things like rest a stack of plates on the man's back and say he'll kill them both if he hears the plates rattle. He would then proceed to rape the man's romantic partner. In one case, he raped a 13-year-old girl and rested the plates on her mother's back. So it was clear that the East Area Rapist had a vicious, sadistic streak. It was not enough to rape his victims. He wanted their loved ones to feel helpless while he did it. He also liked to torment his victims after he raped them. He called several of his victims and threatened to kill them if they went to the police. One time, on January 2nd, 1978, his voice was recorded. Here is a recording of the phone call. In 1977, the FBI developed the first profile of the East Area Rapist. They said he was white, 20 to 25 years old, above average intelligence, and he gave the impression that he's a good guy. He was probably introverted and shy, and he had a job with minimal contact with the public. They also thought that he wouldn't stop unless he was caught. But then, in 1979, he suddenly did stop. No one knew why. Six months after he stopped, the original Night Stalker murders began. Until the DNA test in early 2001, no one connected the two crime sprees. There are several reasons for this, and one of the main ones was the distance between the crime sprees. These stereo rapist crimes happen around Sacramento, and the original Night Stalker murders happen in Southern California, closer to Los Angeles. For example, Danville, where the last East Area Rapist attack happened, 
is over 300 miles from Goleta, where the first Night Stalker murders were committed. Also, the East Area Rapists didn't kill any people in their homes, and the Night Stalker brutally murdered 10 people. But the similarities between the crime sprees were striking. The East Area Rapists seemed to target couples like the original Night Stalker. In both series of crimes, he broke into the victim's home in the middle of the night and surprised them while they were in bed. After it was made public that the East Area Rapist and the original Night Stalker were the same person, representatives from different sheriff's departments decided to meet and share resources. They thought he might have committed more crimes. One of those crimes was a double murder in Rancho Cordova, California that was committed during the East Area Rapist era. Rancho Cordova is a city where several East Area Rapist attacks happened, including the first attack in June 1976. On February 2, 1978, 21-year-old Brian Majori and his wife, 20-year-old Katie Majori, were walking their dog. They were confronted by a gunman and tried to escape by running into a backyard. In the backyard, part of the fence was down and the couple ran over the down fencing into the next backyard. Then the masked man fired a gun at them. Brian was shot in the chest and Katie was shot in the head. They both died later in the hospital. It is thought that they saw the East Area Rapist doing something like breaking into a home or casing a potential victim's house. He then killed them to silence them. Unfortunately, while the police thought they discovered more murders he may have committed, they were no closer to finding the killer's identity. In 2008, it was made public that the police were investigating the possibility they committed another series of crimes that happened before the East Area Rapists became active. Starting in April 1974, or possibly earlier, the city of Vesalia, California, suffered a series of bizarre break-ins. Over 130 homes were broken into over 20 months. The perpetrator was called the Vesalia Ransacker. In some cases, he broke into several homes in one night. On one night, he broke into a dozen homes. Usually, when someone breaks into a home, it's to steal valuables. The ransacker often ignored high-value items and stole personal things like wedding rings, class rings, and stamp collections. He spent a lot of time trashing his victims' homes in rather sadistic ways like pushing over bookcases and pouring wine onto carpets. He would also gather up female undergarments and arrange them on the bed. It is also believed that he masturbated in the homes. He also stole several guns. One of the guns he stole was a 38 caliber Morocco revolver. It is also believed that the ransacker committed a murder. On September 11, 1975, in the midst of the ransacker's rampage, 45-year-old Claude Snelling was awoken by a sound in the middle of the night. He lived in a house in Visalia with his family. Snelling was a highly respected professor of journalism at a local college. 
He got out of bed to investigate the noise. He made his way to the carport and found something shocking happening. A man in a ski mask was kidnapping his daughter. The masked man shot 45-year-old Claude Snelling twice and then ran away. Snelling died in the hospital. The owner of the 38 caliber Morocco that was stolen had recovered some bullets they had fired for target practice. Ballistic tests revealed that the gun used to kill Snelling was a 38 caliber Morocco. If the original Night Stalker was the Visalia Ransacker, that would mean that Claude Snelling was his first victim. But the police didn't have any physical evidence that connected the Visalia Ransacker to the East Area Rapist and the original Night Stalker. But there were specific characteristics that suggested the crime sprees were committed by the same person. The last known Ransacker home invasion was in December 1975. Six months later, in June 1976, the first East Area Rapist attack happened in Rancho Cordova. Also, there are several sketches of the Ransacker, and he looks like a younger version of the East Area Rapist. Another major factor is that all the crime sprees had a sadistic edge to them. The Ransacker preferred to destroy rather than steal from his victims. Experts also think that the three series of crimes show an evolution of the perpetrator. All the crime sprees involve breaking into someone's home. The crimes are an escalation from ransacking and petty theft to rape to rape and murder. Yes, people were killed during the ransacker and East Area Rapist crime sprees, but those murders seem to be more reactionary than the intention of the perpetrator. Claude Snelling was killed after he caught the ransacker kidnapping his daughter. It's also believed that Brian and Katie Majori may have seen the East Area Rapist doing something and he killed them to keep them quiet. Unfortunately, the police didn't have any suspects in the Vesalia Ransacker case. In early 2013, true crime writer Michelle McNamara started writing about the serial killer for Los Angeles Magazine. She had developed a new name for the perpetrator, the Golden State Killer. This name stuck and it became the official moniker of the killer. After the articles were published, McNamara set to work on writing a book about the Golden State Killer entitled, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Tragically, in April 2016, McNamara who was the wife of comedian Pat Oswald, died in her sleep at the age of 46. Her death was ruled an accidental overdose. McNamara and Oswald had one child together, a daughter, who turned seven less than a week before McNamara's death. When McNamara died, she had completed about three quarters of the book. It was posthumously published in February 2018. Two months after Michelle McNamara's death in June 2016, the FBI and several law enforcement agencies held a press conference. They offered a $50,000 reward for information leading to an arrest in the Golden State Killer case. But yet again, no viable leads were generated. 
Then in the spring of 2017, criminalist Paul Holes, who was working on the Golden State Killer case, heard about how the Bear Brook case was solved. In our last two episodes, we cover the Bear Brook case. Here is a quick word from our sponsor. We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod Studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems. Classic functional medicine back to basics health tips and special updates from the best doctors in the United States of America. Check out this health and wellness podcast shows. Explore Health Talk Weekly, Healthy Lifestyle Matters, Excellent Health Digest, Healthy and Free Daily and last but not least, Weekly Health and Fitness Corner. Also, check out Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told Fiction Podcast, for that real life on the go experience with the 27-year-old golden boy, who made our guest invite number one list. He tells us about his story as it happens in real time and in real life. It's Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told. Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show. Many aspects of the Bear Brook case were ultimately solved thanks to a technique called genetic genealogy. Since we covered genetic genealogy in the Bear Brook episodes, we won't go over it in detail in this episode. After Paul Holes heard about the Bear Brook case's resolution, he got in contact with Barbara Ray Venter, a former patent lawyer. Ray Venter became interested in genealogy after she retired. She then became involved with a website that helped adopted people find their birth families through genetic genealogy. Ultimately, she was an integral person when it came to cracking the Bear Brook case. Starting in October 2017, Barbara Ray Venter worked with Paul Holes and the FBI to try to determine the killer's identity. They found the great, great, great grandparents of the Golden State Killer. They were a couple who lived on the East Coast in the 1800s. From that couple, they filled out about 25 family trees. In early 2018, they traced a family tree to a 72-year-old retiree named Joseph James D'Angelo, who lived in Citrus Heights, a Sacramento suburb. After tracking down his identity, a surveillance team started following D'Angelo. In a garbage can that was set at the curb outside of his home, the police recovered a tissue. DNA in the tissue was matched to the Golden State Killer. On April 24, 2018, D'Angelo was arrested and charged with eight counts of murder. He was the first serial killer who was caught thanks to genetic genealogy. It had been nearly 32 years since his last confirmed murder. After he was arrested, many people were wondering who exactly is Joseph James D'Angelo? He was not a known criminal, and had he not been found through genetic genealogy, he may have never been identified. Not a whole lot is known about his life. But this is what is known. 
Joseph James D'Angelo was born on November 8, 1945, in Bath, New York. His father was an army sergeant. D'Angelo was the oldest of four children. He has two sisters and a brother. Several people, including one of his sisters, said that his father was cold and distant and he abused D'Angelo. D'Angelo attended high school in Rancho Cordova, California. He then went to Folsom High School in Folsom, California. He received his GED. As a teenager, D'Angelo killed animals and broke into homes. In September 1964, D'Angelo joined the Navy. He ended up doing a 22-month tour in Vietnam on two different ships. In 1968, D'Angelo attended college in Rockland, California. He graduated with an associate degree in police science in December 1970. He attended California State University, Sacramento, and he got a degree in criminal justice. In May 1973, D'Angelo was working with the burglary unit for the police force in the small town of Exeter, California. Around this time, the Visalia Ransacker crime spree began. D'Angelo was 27 years old when they started. Downtown Exeter is about 10 miles from the center of Visalia. In November 1973, D'Angelo got married. In December 1975, the Visalia Ransacker crime spree came to an end. Six months later, in June 1976, the first known East Area Rapist attack happened in Rancho Cordova. D'Angelo was 30 years old. A couple months later, in August 1976, D'Angelo got a job as a police officer with the Auburn Police Department. The East Area Rapist was active for three years, and then a spree suddenly came to an end in July 1979. The same month that the rape stopped, D'Angelo was arrested for shoplifting. He had been caught stealing a hammer and dog repellent from a hardware store. Later that month, he was fired from the police department. It's not known what D'Angelo did for work for the next ten years. About two months after D'Angelo was fired from the police department, Robert Offerman and Deborah Manning were killed, which was the start of the original Night Stalker murders. In 1980, D'Angelo and his wife purchased the house in Citrus Heights, where he would be arrested 38 years later. In July 1981, Sherry Domingo and Gregory Sanchez were murdered. Then the killings came to a sudden stop. In September 1981, two months after the murders of Domingo and Sanchez, D'Angelo's wife gave birth to a daughter. In December 1982, D'Angelo's wife became a member of California's Bar Association. In May 1986, Janelle Cruz was murdered. Six months later, D'Angelo's wife gave birth to another daughter. Three years after Janelle's murder, in May 1989, D'Angelo's wife gave birth to their third and final daughter. 
In August of that year, D'Angelo started working at a distribution center for a grocery store chain, Save Mart. Two years later, D'Angelo and his wife split up. D'Angelo retired from Save Mart in 2017. No one ever suspected that D'Angelo might be the Golden State Killer. His estranged wife said that he always had an excuse as to why he was going out when he committed his crimes. Some people do not believe her and think she might have known more than she was letting on. In June 2020, 74-year-old Joseph James D'Angelo pleaded guilty to 13 counts of murder, among other charges. This includes the murders of Claude Snelling and Brian and Katie Majori. D'Angelo was also linked to five additional rapes during the East Area Rapist Spree. It's believed that D'Angelo was responsible for at least 13 murders, more than 50 rapes, at least 100 home robberies in California. At a sentencing hearing, D'Angelo surprised many people by apologizing to his victims' families. In exchange for pleading guilty, D'Angelo avoided the death penalty. Instead, he was sentenced to life without the chance of parole. At the time of this recording, Joseph James D'Angelo was serving a sentence at the North Kern State Prison in Delano, California. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.